Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. That's our introduction to the individual we know in Scripture as the devil or as the Satan. But you know, throughout Scripture, he's given many other names, known by different descriptions to students of the Bible. He's called our adversary in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Jesus called him Beelzebub in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 24. He called him the strong man in the parable in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 29. The enemy, Matthew 13, 29. He's a murderer and the father of lies, John 8 and verse 44. He is Abaddon or Apollyon, which means destruction or destroyer, Revelation 9 and verse 11. He's the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2 and verse 2. He's also referred to as the serpent, the old dragon, the devil, the deceiver of the whole world, and the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12, 9 and 10. The Bible calls him by many different names, by many different descriptions, but he really has one aim, and that is to destroy those of us who are image bearers of God Almighty. You know, when you read throughout Scripture, you see all of these different descriptions of who the devil is and what the devil does. And what the Bible is trying to key us in on is on who our ultimate enemy is and what he would desire to do to each and every one of us. Our culture has what you might call a love-hate relationship with the devil. There's this idea that we know that the devil's a bad guy, but there's also been what we might call the secularization of Satan. We've got cute outfits for him. He plays roles, at least depicted roles, in movies, and on occasion, he's seen as wise or given good advice. You've seen the movies where he's supposedly on one shoulder and the angel on the other, and he is often seen as giving more wise and sensible advice than the one that's supposed to stand for righteousness. I guess it's been a few weeks now since the famous slap of Will Smith on Chris Rock at the Oscars, but in his speech when he later won the Oscar for Best Actor, Will Smith said that Denzel Washington talked to him in between commercials after he had hit Rock and told him, listen, in your greatest hour of trial, that's when the devil puts you to the test. And many people love that quote and it went viral, but not everybody. A Hispanic filmmaker said that that was one of the worst speeches that he had ever heard, mainly for that line. He said because it was religious propaganda, in fact, the devil does not exist. That's our problem. Some people attribute far too much power to the devil, believing that he is equal in power to God, just happens to be on the bad side. And then there are others who don't take him seriously enough. And to the degree that we err on either side, it'll be to our folly and shame. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about what we call a few weeks ago the ministry of God. And Paul is writing to these Christians who he had a great part or role to play in their becoming Christians. And he talks about all of the ways that God is still active, though God is in heaven. And though Paul was aware and sure of God's ministry and active service, Paul was not naive. Paul realized that while the Lord of heaven is working on behalf of his people, there is also an enemy. There is also the tempter. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3. There is someone who would like to ruin the world, destroy Paul's ministry, and ultimately upend his relationship with the Corinthians. And so in this book, where Paul several times mentions all of the things that God is doing, he also mentions the work of the adversary. I count at least six times where Paul mentions the devil, Satan, our adversary, either directly or indirectly. And every time that Paul does this, he's doing so so that the Corinthians and those of us in 2022 might know how he works and ultimately be able to overcome. 
We're not to be infatuated with the devil. But we are supposed to study him. This morning, Nadia said, what are you preaching on? I said, the devil. She said, why? He's a bad guy. Well, listen. We need to know about how he works. If we don't, we may say the devil's doing things that the Bible says that he doesn't. And we may fail to see all of the ways in which he really does. To overestimate or underestimate his work will beat our folly and shame. Would you march through 2 Corinthians with me this morning? Notice six ways that we can deal wisely with the devil. How can we see the way that he works and then in turn ultimately overcome him? Number one, we know how he works. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Andy read for us a moment ago that passage where Paul is speaking of a brother who was at one point called in sin. I believe this is a reference back to the brother called in sexual sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And now he's repentant of that sin. And Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 2, I want you to reaffirm your love for him. In fact, in verse 10 of chapter 2, Paul says, I've already forgiven him. And the Corinthians should as well. He has sinned. He's repented. It should be forgiven and forgotten. Ephesians 4.32. And then Paul gets to his punchline in verse 11. You need to hurry up and forgive this individual who's repented so that we won't be the ESV has outwitted by Satan. Your translation may have to be caught by advantage. Let Satan get an advantage over us because we are not ignorant of his design. Paul's point is this. If they don't forgive this individual who's repented, the devil will let that that grudge holding and that bitterness fester in their hearts and it won't turn out good for them. But Paul's main point is, you know how he works. You're not ignorant of his design. And so hurry up and forgive or the devil will get the best of you. If you and I are going to deal wisely with the devil, it is to the degree that we embrace Paul's point in verse 11. And that is that we know how he works. Isn't it interesting that most people have this flip the other way around? They believe the devil has us so analyzed and so down pat. He knows our temptations. He knows our every move, even though the Bible never says that. Paul actually says the other thing. Paul doesn't say the devil knows you so well. You can't help but fall prey to his temptations and advances. He says you have him figured out. You're not ignorant of his devices. And so don't fall prey. In the end, the devil really has three moves that he can make, like an old TV with just three channels. That's all the devil has. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John says he operates through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride or the vainglory of life. That's ultimately the way the devil works. Those are the only avenues he has. He doesn't know our every move or everything we're going to do. He merely uses those three avenues to varying degrees. And tries to see where he can get us to slip up. It's what he did with Job. He said, maybe this will get Job. And when that didn't work, he said, well, maybe this. And in Matthew chapter 4 with with Jesus, when he tempted the Lord, he said, maybe it'll be bread or maybe it'll be power or maybe satanic worship. He really didn't know. He was guessing. And I'm persuaded he guesses with us as well. Jesus said, the wicked one has nothing in me, John 14 and verse 30. And because I've overcome, you can overcome, John 16 and verse 33. He operates through those three avenues and we can deal wisely with him because we know how he works. Have you ever been at home watching a TV show, a sort of game show, Jeopardy type deal, and you see someone miss a question you believe everybody in the world should know and you start screaming at the TV? How did you miss that if you have? Got two things to say to you. Number one, they can't hear you. (laughs) And number two, you probably wouldn't do any better, at least not on the spot. From 2007 to 2019, there was a game show that ran in different spurts and at different points called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And most people, most adults would say that they are. 
In the 12-year history of the show, only two individuals ever won the million-dollar prize. One was the superintendent of schools in Georgia, and another was a man who won the Nobel Prize for Physics and is a professor at the University of California in Berkeley. The only person to come near those two was the dean at Yale. Most people, other individuals who engaged in the show, weren't as smart as they thought. But don't you see Paul's point? If there was a game show called, Are You Smarter Than the Devil? Every Christian should answer in the affirmative, yes, and we should win. We should overcome because we know how he works. Now, here's the question for you and for me. How does he work? I don't just mean how does he work in those three broad avenues. I mean specifically in your life. How does he work? James 1.14 says every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. We tip him off by the things that we struggle with, by the things we give into. And to the degree that we learn over time our own patterns, our own habits, we'll know how he works in our lives. Maybe for you it's one of these. Maybe it's lust. Matthew 5, 27 through 28, whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Maybe it's coveting. Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things in which he possesses. Maybe it's anger. You know that every time you get upset, he's got you. You do foolish things. Ecclesiastes 7, 9 says, be not hasty in your spirit to be angry. Anger rests in the bosom of fools. You know how he works. It's always your anger. It's always doubt. He gets you doubting. He gets you questioning. He gets you to be unsure. Oh, you have little faith, Jesus said, Matthew 14, 31. Why do you doubt? Maybe it's pride. Just about the time things start going your way, you sort of start drifting away from God. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Maybe it's loneliness. You feel like Elijah in 1 Kings 19. It's all me. I'm all by myself. Impatience. Stress. Maybe speech. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you know how he works. And so hurry up and forgive and don't let him gain the advantage over you. We're not outwitted by his designs. The ESV has those translations that render this. He won't gain an advantage over us. The word means something along the lines of he won't rob us or get the best of us. He doesn't have to. And maybe our continual failure to see how he works in our lives has very little to do with how clever he is and how much to do with how careless we are. We should say to ourselves, you know what? I know how this works. Every time I start compromising in this way, it leads to bigger things. Every time I start sitting in the house alone, I start getting depressed. I start singing the blues. Not this time. Nope. I'm going to get up, call somebody and visit somebody. He's not going to get. I know how this works. We should say to ourselves, you know, every time the money starts getting low, I just start feeling antsy. I get agitated. I'm not going to let that happen to me. Every time I miss one service. It just sort of spirals down and then I miss for two months. I I know how he works. To deal wisely with the devil is to embrace the truth that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians 2.11. He's not getting us. If you're honest with your heart, you know the devil is really not causing us to stumble with new things. It's the same old things repackaged in different ways. Here's number two. Dealing wisely with the devil means that we learn how to work the remote. Okay. The third, second one is that we will see that he blinds the minds of unbelievers. In chapter four, Paul talks about the way that the gospel went forth and the way that the gospel is preached. And in verse three, he says, if our gospel be veiled or hidden is veiled to those who are lost. And then verse four, he says, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. 
lest they should see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing we should appreciate in dealing wisely with the devil is that he plays a role in blinding the minds of unbelievers. Notice Paul's choice language in verse 4. He does not say that the devil blinds the eyes of the unbelievers. No, because in spiritual matters, the mind makes the difference. And so he blinds the minds of unbelievers. That's where he does his work. And we need to appreciate that this doesn't mean second Corinthians four and verse four does not mean that the devil makes people disbelieve the gospel. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that he has a role, that he plays a part. And we need to appreciate the part that he plays and how he plays it. The devil blinds the minds of unbelievers. And why does he do that? So that they won't see how glorious the gospel really is. Notice verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, he says, The light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In the end, the devil wants people to focus on things that really don't matter so that they won't see Jesus in the gospel for as glorious as it really is. Now, what does that mean for Christians? It means this. As we evangelize, as we reach out to people, we must be very careful to get to the root of the problem and not the fruit of people's problems. The biggest problem with people in our world today is not that they're engaged in homosexuality. It's not that they drink or that they murder or that they lie or that they steal. Those things are sinful and it'll damn an individual's soul if left unrepented of. But at the end of the day, those are merely the fruit of their problems. The root of every individual's problem outside of Jesus Christ is their mind is warped and they won't see God for as glorious as he really is. And so in doing so, They settle for lesser things. Jesus knew this, and that's why throughout his ministry, he always attacked the hearts of people. Matthew 15, 18 through 20, he said, what goes into a man won't defile him, but out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, blasphemy, covetous. Those things defile a man and not the things from within. Jesus knew hard work. Hard work is hard work, but it had to be done. And so he said, I want you to focus on the minds of individuals. That's where Satan does his work. He blinds the minds of unbelievers and gets them to turn away from Jesus Christ and from the gospel. And so we need to focus on trying to point people's minds back to God in the way that God would have us to do it. And that is ultimately through the gospel. You read the Old and New Testament, especially the New Testament, and this idea emerges from its pages. The world is a dark place. First John five nineteen says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Galatians 1 and verse 4, Paul said, we are living in what he called the present evil age. Most people are headed on what Jesus called in Matthew 7 and verse 13, the broad way that leads to destruction. And many people are rushing in that way. Most people are choosing the wrong direction. And Paul says it's because their minds are blinded. They can't see things as they really are. And so we need the gospel to go in and ultimately change their minds about seeing things the wrong way. What this point means about dealing wisely with the devil is that lost people are not enemies that need to be destroyed. They're enslaved people that need to be delivered. We should look out on people who aren't Christians with pity and with sympathy, not as our enemies who need to be proven wrong, but as individuals who are enslaved. The New Testament pictures lost people as those that really don't know any better. And so they make foolish choices. Dr. Francesco Pia wrote an article about why why drowning does not always look like drowning. And in the article, he describes something called instinctive drowning response. And he said most people think of drowning like they've seen in the movies. People are flailing on their arms, screaming loudly. He says it happens like that sometimes, but most times it's a lot more quiet. It's a lot quieter than that. How quiet? 
of the 750 children that will drown this year, according to statistics, 375 of them will do so just merely 25 feet away from their parents. Pia says, you know why that's the case? They don't know the signs. They don't know what to look for. He says sometimes when people are drowning, they can't get their mouth up above the water to cry out. Their arms can't flail and swing around like we see in the movies. They're merely gasping for air. And so there are no screams. They often look very calm as if everything's well, but they're dying inside. And when the devil blinds the minds of unbelievers, don't you know that there are some people they don't know to cry out for help? They don't know that they're ultimately sin sick. He's deceived them. And yes, they've fallen for it. And they'll give an account for what they have done with their free will. But don't you see they really need to be rescued? And sometimes they're right there. They're right in our reach. And we don't see them crying out for help like the New Testament says that they are. And so 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, Paul says the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. But be gentle to all men, apt to teach, patient and meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. If perhaps God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they might recover themselves out of the snare of the devil because they've been taken captive by him at his will. That's what's happened to deal wisely with the devil is to say that most people are blinded by him because he's turning their eyes away from the truth. He distracts them. How does he do it? He blinds their eyes through distraction. In the parable of the soils in Luke 8 and verse 12, Jesus said the seed that fell along the path, the devil comes immediately. As soon as they hear a sermon and they say, you know what, I'm going to think about doing something like that. The devil says, look over here. And he takes it out of their hearts. He distracts them through a disenchantment with religion. They say, I've known religious people. And they, they haven't always been what they should. And did you see what that Christian did on the news? Or at least this person who claimed to be a Christian. I don't want anything to do with Christianity. He blinds their minds through a stubborn refusal to obey. It's what the Jews said to Paul on his first missionary tour, Acts 13, 45 through 46. We don't want to hear about Jesus. This person says, don't even begin to introduce the gospel to me. I want nothing to do with it. He blinds the minds. And we say to people that are not Christians this morning, if you have never obeyed the gospel, don't be deceived. Maybe you've said about yourself before, you know, I wish there was something more to this life. There is something more to this life. It's eternal life. And the devil would do everything within his power to get you to focus on now. But if you do that, you'll regret it forever. And he says to those of us who are Christians, aim for the mind. That's where the blindfold is. It's the minds of individuals, not merely their hands and their actions. Their thinking is off. What they think matters really doesn't. And what they can't see is the most glorious thing in the world. And so dealing wisely with the devil is to see that people need to think. You know, most people will do anything in the world but think. And Christianity is to say, we need you to think and think about the right things. Philippians 4 and verse 8. And get your mind centered on Jesus Christ. Now, here's number three. Dealing wisely with the devil means that we see that he has no participation with Christ or Christians. The third time that Paul mentions Satan or the devil is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. This passage has typically been used to talk about whether or not Christians should marry non-Christians, but that's really not Paul's point in this section. He's talking about the Corinthians' engagement with false teachers and those individuals who had come into the church at Corinth and started to get them to doubt whether or not Paul was a genuine apostle. Now, whether or not it has some application to marriage is really a side issue. Paul's point is much bigger than that. He asked several rhetorical questions. What concord or what agreement or what fellowship has light with darkness, righteousness with unrighteousness? And then in verse 15, he says, and what concord or accord has Christ with Belial? Somebody says that's not the devil. That word, Belial, it means worthless ones or foolish ones. It appears several times, some 66 times in the Old Testament. 
It's in Judges 20, 13, 1 Samuel 25, 25. It meant foolish or worthless ones. But in the intertestamental age, between the Old and New Testament, it began to be a term used to describe the devil. And that's how Paul uses it here. What's his point? If I'm going to be a faithful child of God, there has to be a distinct difference between me and the world. If you're a Christian, there will be occasions in this in this life where you're going to run into the devil, but we shouldn't be running with them. Someone has said if you never run into the devil, it might be because you're running in the same direction. And we need to take inventory of our lives and make sure that's not the case. Ephesians 5, 10 and 11, Paul says, discern what the will of the Lord is. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. You make sure that you have no fellowship with things that are sinful. That doesn't mean we don't engage with non-Christians. It means we don't engage in sin with them. We don't compromise our righteousness in order to hopefully try to win some. If you look at the questions in verses 14 and 15 of 2 Corinthians 6, they're all rhetorical. What's the answer to every question that Paul poses in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15? The answer to all of them is none. What fellowship, what concord, what agreement, what commonality do any of these things have with one another? Paul's answer would be the same answer you would give. Absolutely none. And our lives should be the same way. You can't sit at the table of the Lord and the table, the table of demons. First Corinthians 10, 20 and 21. We've got to be marked out as people that are going in the way of righteousness. The Bible says if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. So far as I can tell, there's not a passage in the Bible that tells us to run away from the devil. We're told to flee fornication. But, you know, James 4, 7 and 8 says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil. And he's the cowardly one. He's the one that will turn and flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Separate yourself from ungodliness. Separate yourself from things that would cause you to compromise. And ultimately, give yourself over to the Lord who died for you. There is nothing in common with these two things. And so you should be a person who is running in the direction of righteousness. You know, if you went to Alabama and you just started walking through Walmart, I guess you wouldn't be able to tell if somebody was a Roll Tide Roll fan or an Auburn fan. But if you go to their house and you go into their basement or man cave and you see Crimson Tide and there are pictures of Nick Saban up on the walls and the game comes on and they start yelling Roll Tide is kind of a dead giveaway at that point. And if you've ever seen a Crimson Tide fan, you know, it's not hard to figure it out. When people encounter us, they may not know right offhand that we're God's people. But if they spend enough time with us, it shouldn't take a long time for them to figure it out. We should be those that are marked as separate from unrighteousness and those that are pleasing to God. Paul's point here in dealing wisely with the devil is simply one word. Don't. Don't deal with him. He will ruin you. He will destroy you. Don't think you're stronger than others who've gone before you and fallen. Separate yourself from him. Now, here's number four. Dealing wisely with the devil means that we would see that he wants to deceive us about God. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, Paul says he's worried about the Corinthians because that as the devil deceived Eve through his cunning, their minds might be corrupted from a pure devotion to Jesus Christ. You read 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3 and Paul's making this parallel. He's saying, look, the devil deceived Eve and he'll do the same thing to you, Corinthians, if you're not careful. And you go back and you read Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 and you say, well, the devil got Eve to eat the forbidden fruit that God said, don't eat this or you will surely die. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And that's correct. But the temptation of the devil was not merely for Eve to eat that which God said she shouldn't. At the heart of the temptation was this. He wanted to lie to her about God. You will not surely die. 
God knows in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. At the heart of the temptation was a lie that God was not who he claimed to be. And he does the same thing to us to deal wisely with the devil is to see that he wants to deceive us about who God is. And Eve believed him and she gave in. The devil wants to say what he said to Eve. God doesn't have your best interests at heart. He's holding out on you. He told Eve, you know, God has good things, but he doesn't want you to have them. And so you should just take matters into you can't trust him. He's selfish. He's only out for himself. He knows that if you eat this, this will be the best thing for you. And he really doesn't love you. The devil wants to deceive us about God. He'll tell you things like God doesn't really care about you, even though the Bible says cast all your care on him because he cares for you. First Peter five and verse seven. He'll tell you God doesn't care what you do with your life. Whatever you do, he'll be pleased, even though the Bible says the wages of sin are death. He'll tell you God's unsure about you. I don't know if you're going to make it to heaven or not. Maybe, maybe not, even though the Bible says he's loved us with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31 and verse 3. He'll tell you, you know, God's forgiven you before, but you can't come home again. Not over that same sin, that same transgression. He won't have you back, even though the Bible says God will run to meet you. He's literally waiting on the porch for you to come home. He'll deceive us about God if we let him. And so we've got to know God. If the devil can't get us to stop believing in God, he will settle for us believing incorrect things about God. The Bible says God is not who the devil says he is. God's not even who you say he is, even though you're a Christian. In the end, the Bible says God is exactly who God says he is. And that's what we have to believe. To deal wisely with the devil is to say, I'm not going to let you deceive me. I'm not going to let you change my mind about God because God will not allow you to change his mind about me. There's a passage in Zechariah chapter three where the priest has sinned and God has forgiven him. Zechariah three, one through six. And the devil raises up as an accuser. And he says, this man's in filthy garments. He doesn't deserve to serve. And the Lord rebukes him and says, I've cleaned him. I've changed his clothes. I've washed him up. He is fit to serve because I've deemed it so. You see, God spoke up on behalf of his servant. And as we interact with the devil, as we are engaged in spiritual warfare, we must do the same in behalf of God. Now, here's number five. The devil disguises himself as an angel of light. I've seen the movies just like you have. And the truth is, nobody here has ever seen the devil. But here's what we know. The pictures of the devil in the movies can't be what he looks like because Paul says the devil's a lot of things, but he's not stupid. He doesn't wear this red suit and this pitchfork and wear a sign that says, hello, I'm Satan and I would like to destroy your life. He doesn't do that. He's smarter than that. Look at Second Corinthians 11 and verse 14. He says that the devil transforms himself into an angel of light. He knows enough to say, if I just come at individuals and say, hey, I want to ruin your life. I'm temptation. I want to send you to eternal condemnation. Most people won't believe. And so he disguises himself. Maybe as a kid, you've read Little Red Riding Hood. You know the story. How does she fall for it? The long teeth, the rough skin. The big eyes, the deep voice is a dead giveaway. It ultimately led to her being destroyed and consumed, or at least that's the European version from the 17th century. We've sort of sanitized it in grandma's hiding in the closet. But in the original version, Little Red Riding Hood is lunch because she misses all of the signs that say, hey, this isn't your grandma. And we read it and we say, of course. And Paul says, you know how the devil works. He he disguises himself as an angel of light. It appears good, but it's really not. 
It's the folly of Ananias and Sapphira and Judas who believed that they could rent the devil a room in their heart and evict him when they got ready. But the devil never intends to rent. He always wants to own. He disguises himself. His temptations look good. And we can deal wisely with the devil when we learn from this point to not follow our hearts, but ultimately follow God's word. Don't say things like, well, I know this is right because everything seems to be working out. It wouldn't be going this smooth if God wasn't with it. Or, yeah, I've compromised doctrinally and I'm going to kind of do some different things. But, hey, it's for the ultimate good. I believe it's God's will for my life. Insert whatever you want into the blank. If it's in the will of God, it's in the word of God. And if it contradicts that, it's not true. The devil will disguise things and make rebellion look just like righteousness. And so we've got to be wise. Those who have studied his behavior long enough know that he disguises things. He makes things appear to be right. He makes things look attractive and to look good. But ultimately, they destroy and they ruin those that succumb and those that give in. Paul's talking in this section about false teachers. If you look at verse 13. They're false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And he says, don't fall for that because the devil does the same thing. He transforms. He changes. And if we're going to deal with them, we've got to know that there are some things in this world that ultimately look good, but they're not good. There's a way that seems right to a man. Somebody says, well, how will I know the difference? Certain things look good. Certain things aren't good. How will I know whether or not it's in line with God? I've got to go to his word because the devil transforms. And he makes things look like they really aren't. Dealing wisely with the devil gets us to see that he transforms. It also helps us to see as Christians that God is not so interested with us looking the part as he is with us living the part. Anybody can dress up. Anybody can come on a Sunday morning and say all the right things and sit in all the right seats and say all of the right things at the right time. The devil does the same thing. He disguises. He transforms. But we can't be spiritual transformers. People that merely say what we think we should say at the right time, but instead people that say, you know what, I'm going to be one way all the time. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees harshly in Matthew 23, 27 through 28. He said, you guys, you look religious. You walk the streets of Palestine in the first century. You all look like individuals who are righteous, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones and hypocrisy and evil. You just have transformed like the devil. As we study the Bible and take inventory of our own hearts, we should be saying, am I a transformer or am I really who I'm supposed to be in Jesus Christ? Because the devil will deceive us if we allow him. Now, here's the sixth and final one that Paul gives us about how to deal wisely with the devil. And that is he will harass the people of God. In Second Corinthians, chapter 12, Paul speaks of his thorn in the flesh. And in verse seven, he says, lest I be conceited above measure. There was a thorn in the flesh given to me, a messenger of Satan sent to harass me. The old King James, new King James has a messenger sent to buffet me. This idea of affliction, there was something done to Paul to afflict him. This word for harass or afflict, it can mean to beat somebody, but that's not what Paul means here. This messenger was sent to give Paul physical turmoil. And this is how the devil works. Some commentators on this verse say maybe Paul's talking about malaria or epilepsy or bouts with depression. We don't know what it was. But in the end, this word for harass, it means he was giving Paul physical hardship of some kind. We don't know what it was, but it was physical. Somebody says, wait a minute. I thought the devil was after my soul. He is. But he won't mind making his journey first through the body. Isn't that what he did with Job? When Job wouldn't give in, he said in Job 2 and verse 4, yes, skin for skin, all that a man has. He'll give for his own life. And he started attacking Job physically. So whether it's cancer or COVID or lupus, 
He'll send a messenger of Satan to harass. The Washington Post released an article at the end of March that said there's been an outcry from the CDC. Teens are showing today more signs of depression than they have in several decades. And it is alarming individuals that study the psychological effects of isolation. They've said that four in ten teens which they surveyed have said that they're more depressed and lonely and isolated than they've ever been before. Somebody says, well, what if that's me? Are you saying it's my fault? No, but I'm also saying it's not God's fault. There's a messenger of Satan sent to harass us and he will take any means that he can, whatever it is physically, whatever it is emotionally or psychologically. Somebody says, well, what do we do about that to deal wisely with the devil as he seeks to afflict our bodies and ultimately get to our minds is to trust in the same thing that Paul did, the same one that Paul did. In verses eight and nine, Paul says the thorn wasn't removed. The physical affliction was not ejected from Paul's life, but the grace of God was present. And that was enough for Paul. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And so though the enemy seeks to arrest, we don't give in. We don't say, I'll serve God if I have 100 percent health. We thank God for life and strength. And we need to add to that prayer. We also thank him for weakness because it's in those weaknesses that we ultimately are strong. Paul says, I'm not going to let it get the best of me. And it's probably because he knew exactly how the devil works. We're introduced to the devil in Genesis chapter three. And in the same chapter where he's introduced to us in scripture, we're also told of his exit. In Genesis three fifteen, God says that eventually the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent. God worked it out through the scheme of redemption through time. But eventually Jesus showed up. Now, the first Adam, he gave up in the garden. But as David read for us this morning, as we partook in the Lord's Supper, the second Adam, Jesus, the Christ, was in the garden. The devil tried the same old tricks, tried to maybe get him to give up and turn back. But Jesus was prepared. The first Adam said, you know what? I want to do this and I'll do what I want. I'll do my will. Jesus said, not this time, not my will, but your will be done. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power over death, that is the devil. And through fear of death, deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. When Jesus won in Gethsemane and at Calvary, he didn't just win for himself. He won for you and he won for me. So we don't have to give up. We don't have to give in. We can be like those Christians in Revelation 12, 11. They overcame him through the blood of the lamb, through the word of their testimony. And because they love not their lives unto death, we have a foe that's against us. But a heavenly father, ultimately, who is for us. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The devil would really like to blind your mind. He would like you to say, I've heard this invitation so many times. No, I'm not going to respond. I don't have any plans on doing anything with the gospel. He would like you to think that this is really not important. But what we want you to see is God is ultimately glorious. And there's something better than this life. There's someone who loves you more than you love yourself, loved you to death. The only one who ever really did. And turn to him and be saved. Investigate the claims of Christianity, see Christ as glorious and ultimately as the one to whom you should render your life. If you are a Christian, you know how he works. And I don't know what types of things he's using in your life right now to try to work on you. But I can assure you of this. It's not new. It might be physical. It might be psychological. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are conquerors. We are overcomers. And his time is winding down. We're going to stand and sing a song to encourage us. If we can help you in any way, if we can band together as brethren and pray for you in your struggle against our common adversary, 
Let us know how we can help you as together we stand and as we sing.